0: This is the Pathways Podcast. This podcast exists to help you find completeness in Jesus.
1: Hey, this is Scott Insminger, one of the co-hosts of the Pathways Podcast, and we are putting a podcast of Mark Christian sharing his story uh, on this podcast that you're listening to just as a little extra for you to to learn more about uh, the Pathways Podcast and just more about uh, who Mark Christian is, even though he's been our minister here at Christ Church for a long time. And the goal of the Pathways podcast is just to help you continue to grow and be complete in Jesus and learn that to do two different ways. One being learning about the rhythms uh, that are important for us to have in our life. And the second part, each month we have a story where someone comes in and just shares a story. And that's a big part of our walk with Jesus that makes that. So we just want to thank you again for taking a moment to listen to this podcast of Mark Christian sharing his story. I want to welcome you to the Pathways podcast. This podcast exists to help you discover completeness in Jesus. My name is Scott Ensminger, one of the ministers here on staff at Christ Church, and this is one of the podcasts that we enjoy doing where we have someone share the story, and this week, the person sharing the story is Mark Christian. Mark, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Glad to be here. Uh, Mark is the senior minister here at Christ Church. For those that are listening that, that uh, aren't familiar, maybe, with our church, and uh, it's been... Uh, Mark, how long have you been on staff now at Christ Church? It
0: was 12 years in July.
1: 12 years. Yeah, that, that has gone by very quickly. Yes, it has. So uh, one of the things, though, that we appreciate about about Mark is, is just uh, – uh, his availability uh, just to to preach the word and his desire to be clear with it. So we're grateful for that. But uh, in this podcast, we want Mark to just to share his story like other people do. So Mark, love for you just to kind of unpack where you were born and raised, uh, what home life was like for you, and let's just kind of start there.
0: Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in South Bend, Indiana. I lived my entire life there until I went to college in 1983. Uh, My parents... um, met working for the airlines in South Bend. And um, my dad had grown up uh, here in Missouri in the local church, but had walked away from it when he went into the military and basically in high school. And my mom um, has a strong faith. And for my dad to to date her and marry her, he needed to get himself figured out. And he always appreciates that my mom was the guiding force to get him back into the church and to the Lord. And uh, so I grew up with parents who were growing in their own faith at the same time while trying to lead uh, me and my three brothers uh, into the Lord. So they were really young in their faith. We didn't have the uh, typical family devotions. Um, I always remember this story. My dad decided through conviction on one Sunday that we were gonna have family devotion time one evening and he got us all around in the living room and started reading. And I think it was Matthew's genealogy and he came across the name Jehoshaphat and we all fell out on the floor laughing because that's something that Sylvester the cat said on the Bugs Bunny show. And my dad lost complete control of the room, got mad, and kicked us all out or whatever and ended the devotions. And I think it was the last time <laughs> we as a family sat down and had family devo. So I did not grow up in what some people experienced, but faith and the church itself was very important to my parents. Um, so while we may not have had Bible studies, we did pray. I remember praying with my parents before I went to bed as a young child. Mm. That kind of disappeared as we got a little bit older and stepped into our own faith. Uh, but they did what they knew how to do to try to encourage us. And the church was very important. Uh, I'll go to my grave remembering my dad, uh, whenever he'd ask us to help around the church, would say something along the lines of, it's not the church, it's our church. And so I grew up in that environment and uh, was really encouraged to go to things like church camp, church um, camp my parents were looking for anything that would help us uh, know who Jesus was and uh, to encourage them because they were figuring it out on their own while trying to raise four boys as well.
1: Yeah, because that is the difficult sometimes of, you know, your your parents growing in their faith and they don't exactly know what to say all the time to that. So they're dependent on the church to lean in, in, into that.
0: Well, you and I have had enough conversations off microphone with our kids that we want our kids to understand. we did the best we could knowing what we did then. Yep. Would we do it differently now? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be firmer in some areas and softer in others, but, um, and I would be more forceful uh, to ask greater questions. But I think as we get older, we give grace to our parents to understand they they tried their best, even though it may not have worked. And sometimes what they thought didn't work actually changed who we were. Yeah.
1: And, and also, and, you know, just it's hard for I mean, we have conversations with parents now. It's hard for them wrapping their mind around not only trying to discipline a kid, but also yeah. how they teach them about Jesus and all that. So it's, it's tough. So when when did you become a Christian?
0: Um, having grown up in the church, gone to VBS. I started going to church camp when I was in fourth grade was the first chance you could. It was in moments like that. It was at uh, in fourth grade at church camp, I had a firm conviction that I needed to be saved. Hmm. Um, I, I grew up with a concept of fearing hell more than loving God. But I knew I was a sinner. And I knew that I had disobeyed my parents, and I had lied, and I had done things. And uh, I had shame and and guilt over that. And uh, there were just through a series of events, I decided I wanted to be baptized. And I asked my parents if I could be, and they stalled me. And I realized that they were putting me off. They thought maybe I was too young, or maybe I didn't know what I needed to know. But Uh, I asked two or three times and they kept saying, well, we'll see, we'll see. And they never followed up on it or so I thought. And uh, they were just trying to find out if this was just a momentary passion or something I was really interested in. Well, stubborn me, I decided I'd wait one entire year before I would ask again. And my mom will tell you to this day she thought I'd lost my interest, like they had done something wrong and I was no longer interested then I asked one year later, and my parents said yes, and they were so so willing to let me be baptized. And I hear a lot of people say, well, I didn't know enough to have made the decision then. I know this 100% now. It's not what I didn't know. It's what I did know. Yeah. And I had a full awareness that I needed Jesus and that uh, I probably had a misperception that God was angry at me, but what I really uh, know now was that I was filled with shame and guilt. Mm. And I needed to be forgiven of that so that I could actually start to choose who I became and how I lived for him. So, um, and I think, I don't know this for certain, but I think I was the first of the four of us to be baptized.
1: Okay. So do you remember who baptized you? My, my dad. Your dad did baptize yeah. you. Yeah. And my, and
0: okay. it's, it's kind of an interesting thing for the parents who might be listening. Um, my dad baptized my oldest brother, Steve, my second oldest brother, Scott, and myself. And when my little brother got uh, baptized at our home church, the... The preacher did it. And we all looked at each other like, why didn't we tell Eric that dad baptized three of the four of us? <laughs> and, but it wasn't, my dad was fine with that. Yeah, But it was cool to have my dad be the one to baptize. Yeah. me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you were the first one you you think that got baptized? I so, yeah. So even as a kid, were you just kind of, you know, you talked about the guilt. I mean, did you feel guilty when after you would do things? Was there kind of yeah. like just kind of natural the way you were wired on that?
0: Yeah. You know, you use that expression um, the way I was wired. I I believe now the Holy Spirit put an ownership on me, not as special, but I have always felt this convicting that, wanted, that caused me to wanna to be better, not to run and hide. Mm. And I've always been grateful for that, that the, the way God has wired me and how I respond to him is he entices me to uh, not be the weaker part or not to settle for that. And so it's, I always remember as a kid just laying in bed thinking I hadn't done enough, I hadn't been good enough. And then I learned what grace was, mm. and it was through church camp. And I finally understood the concept of grace. And so uh, it was refreshing to realize that God accepts I'm sorry uh, a lot easier than I do. And that concept of grace was foreign to me. I, I will never blame my home church for not preaching it. I wasn't listening when they did.
1: Right. And, and I think that for you know even—I think you and I raised kind of the same church that a lot of times— uh, they just felt like if it kind of you know they'd scare it out of us it would keep us yeah uh, would keep us in the faith yeah
0: I, I heard that more on the school bus and at school you know that if I died tonight would I go to heaven and there was all of that fear yeah and once I escaped that it took me a long time to but once I escaped that uh, then I began to see uh, God for who He revealed Himself to be not what people told me He was
1: right absolutely. So moving into like your junior high and high school, uh so you get baptized so you're what, fifth grade somewhere around there? Yeah. Okay. Nine, so whatever that age was. Okay. Yeah, maybe a little bit younger. Yeah. Maybe a little bit younger. I could say you're an overachiever in, oh, no. in school.
0: Yeah, maybe I went to church camp earlier, but I was nine I know I was nine when I was baptized.
1: Oh okay. So going into even like junior high and yeah. high school, what was that like for you?
0: I look back on it now, and if you can see your history in the rear view window, you're probably clearer. Um, I was a church camp kid, and that's not my nature, being an introvert, to just jump into crowds of people I don't know. So the first year I went to, uh, to church camp, I had to go late because of a baseball game, and we arrived late. We didn't arrive before it all started, but it was a little bit later, and um, we showed up, and there was and I didn't know anybody. And I was really nervous and worried. And I walked into the cabin for the boys that was open. There was one bunk. It was a bottom bunk, which of course stinks. You want to be on the top bunk. And it was a bottom bunk and this kid was on top and I walked in and put my stuff away and he introduced himself and uh, and his name was Mike. And Mike became, we went to camp together from fourth grade all the way through high school. And we roomed together in Bible college and we wow. were best men in each other's weddings. So church camp was huge in my life. So because I had such a good experience that first week, I would go, they would do two weeks of those of every age group. I would go to all two weeks. And my parents would be kind of like, well, it's expensive to send you the second one. I would go to my grandpa and he would write the check. (laughs) And uh, so the influence on that, while my friends were home and they were doing what junior high and high school kids did in the summers unwatched by their parents, I was in an environment that was completely different. And so I saw youth ministers, youth sponsors, people that volunteered at camps who came in week in week out, volunteered a week at camp, and I saw the investment that they were making. And they were smart, and they weren't stuffy and old hat. They they were athletes. They were successful business people. Like They were sold out to Jesus. I saw enough of those people that I wanted to live a life like that. Mm. I saw preachers who were cool and funny and up on stuff. They weren't... Like I guess said, stuffy and, and just had missed the point. And so I don't know what my stereotypes were, but they all dissolved there. So I would have this these great moments of people pouring into me and encouraging me because I went to camp and then I also worked at the camp later as part of my journey. And um, I'll never trade those summers for anything because that those people's investment, even to this day, has mattered to me. And I think the path some of one, some of my brothers took and some of my friends took was only because they didn't have those opportunities or they didn't take those opportunities. Like I got to take them.
1: Right. Did you, uh, so when did, because you said just then that you worked there in the summertime, like when did that start?
0: My dad for one year, this is one of those providential moments of God. My dad was the camp uh, booster for our church, for our church camp for one year because nobody else would do it. My dad sighed and took it. And he came home one night from a camp board meeting and he said, The camp manager, Bob Millett, is looking for workboys to wash dishes, cut grass, just do general things around the camp during a week so that he can do his primary role. And my dad said, would you be interested in that? I said, sure, because I loved camp. And so he called Bob, and Bob gave me one week in seventh grade to show up to find out if I had any work ethic or anything and, uh, you know, what I fit in, What I work hard, What I do those things? And I had a great week that week. He asked me to come back a second week that summer. And I remember his wife telling me, uh, Bob doesn't normally do this, but he must like you. Well, he changed my life. I worked for, for him for seventh, the summers of my seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade year. Wow. And then, um, and he, he poured into me. Bob was a wonderful man, but Bob did not play. And when we were typical high school and junior high boys and our our language got gross or our humor got dark, uh, Bob had no problem quoting Ephesians to us about not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And he was my summer dad. His wife was my summer mom and his daughter was my summer sister. I mean, Mary Lynn and I are still tight to this day. And when I look at that, I just think what an opportunity God gave me that shaped me. Because once again, not only was I at camp, I was seeing the effects of camp on fourth and fifth graders and high school kids and just a variety. And then I could see that entire summer the number of sold-out people who would give a week of vacation to love kids so they'd know Jesus. And my friends didn't get that. Mm. So it was easy to dismiss God and walk away from church because it wasn't. And I was thinking, no, I actually got to see those summers, and that shaped me.
1: Yeah, and you got to see a lot of people give their lives to the Lord
0: and— Bible college kids coming from Cincinnati Bible Seminary or coming from uh, uh, Central Christian College of the Bible or Lincoln, uh, Great Lakes Christian College, where I ended up going to school. They were all there. These were, I mean, when you're in high school, you want to be a cool college kid. And here's where these kids coming in and they were sold out. And I was like, this is fascinating.
1: So so with that going on in the summertime, what was the school year like for you? What kind of high school <laughs> yeah. student were you
0: Yeah, I could carry the momentum of the summer. Every year, I carried it further into the semester. (laughs) I would love to say that it got me through the whole year, but it didn't. I had the typical struggles that everybody has, like, I want to be good. I think I lived most of my high school years on behavior modification. Okay. If I had two weeks where I didn't cuss when I got angry, or uh, I didn't do something stupid, or I didn't look at something I shouldn't have looked at, then I was doing better. I didn't understand how God uh, sanctifies you and shapes you. Uh, He was patient. I'll say this about my story for the rest of my life. God was patient with me and he was kinder than he ever should have been. He gave me time to learn it on my own. He surrounded me with people who corrected me. And uh, so in high school, I got I got the hall pass of all hall passes. I was a good student for high school. I mean, I didn't apply myself, but I got B pluses and A minuses and I had a good grade point. Um, I didn't cause trouble in school. I wasn't disrespectful to teachers. I was a good kid. I thought that's what Christian kids did. The teachers knew that I was a, a good kid. And I didn't cause problems. So I got opportunities that other kids didn't get because I didn't cause problems. And And for the longest time, I thought that's what I was doing better because that's what I was doing.
1: Yeah, you got almost hide behind that.
0: Absolutely. And I got away with stuff uh, because they, you know, I mean, I didn't break rules or anything, but I could skip classes and the teachers liked me and they would just blow it off. And it let me out early for ball games and stuff like that that other kids didn't get. So I was spoiled. I've been spoiled my whole life, but- that wasn't to my benefit. Right. And so uh it took me a long time to to realize it. And then uh as we you know the story go go down further when I got to college I had an awakening because I realized what it really meant to live for Jesus and not just not just to be a good kid.
1: So was your plan when you when you graduated from high school, was your plan to, to go to Bible college or what was what, what were you thinking? No, I was actually, time?
0: I was going to Indiana University to be a sports writer. Okay. If you would have asked me my sophomore, junior, and senior year, I would have told you I was going to study journalism. I wrote for the school newspaper. In fact, I wrote for the South Bend Tribune. I would play in games and I would report games I went to and and I would report that to a South Bend Tribune sports writer who would use all my facts and then write his own story and he would pay me X amount per game. So it was awesome. I was living the dream. He pulled me aside one day graciously and told me that uh, sports writing in small towns didn't pay a full salary. You would go to college, but you'd have to get another job to make ends meet. And that kind of soured me. So that happened my senior year. And I was like, ah, but I love sports. I was gonna be a beat writer for the Chicago Cubs. I love baseball. I just love sports. I love talking about it and thinking about it. And I thought this would be a great life. And then a series of events happened um, the last two weeks in high school. And um, I had a room, I had a roommate, I had a deposit, I was accepted, I was going to IU. It was the third best uh, journalism school uh, in the nation next to Northwestern and University of Missouri, Columbia. And so I was like, well, I could stay home and get in-state tuition, it's, it's a good school. And then a series of events happened and uh, uh, that all kind of fell apart and I didn't know what I was gonna do. And then uh, sometime in middle of June or July of that summer, uh, one of the, the baseball coach from Great Lakes Christian College was down at camp speaking. He was a dynamic preacher. And he, um, he told me I needed to go to Great Lakes. And I had always put him off like, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about that. But I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't <laughs> going to Bible college. And uh, my dad talked me into it. And he said, why don't you go there for a year? You take the same classes you will at IU. And he said, you know, you'll be surrounded by kids you know from camp. And you know a lot of the people from Great Lakes. And I did. And uh, so for some reason that I still to this day don't know why, I dropped everything at IU and went to Great Lakes.
1: Was that that kind of out of character for your dad to like say like, why don't you go do that? Okay.
0: My parents were incredibly permissive. Now they were protective. They wouldn't let us do anything illegal or unethical. But my parents kind of taught us you have to live with consequences. And so I would hear very often from my parents, I don't know if I would do it that way. And here's why. But they gave you the permission to try it. And so for my dad to be that like directive uh, was just a blessing.
1: Yeah. So they weren't nervous of you going to Bible college, like in being a preacher that didn't scare them or anything yeah. that it wasn't...
0: They'll tell you to this day, they had no idea I would come out of Bible college a preacher. Okay. Because I had no interest in that. And that wasn't something I ever showed passion or interest for. So, and it surprised me as much as them, but...
1: So before, before kind of talking about some of the, mm-hmm. uh, your time there in college, anybody, any, uh, any friendships or anything in high school that, that jumps out that you just helped you stay on track with your journey?
0: Yeah, um, I was—none of the friends that I hung out with, I, they went to church, but none of us were living it. Like, none of us thought dis- being a better disciple and discipling others was our role. That's what the professionals did. But I did have a teacher in high school— Um, and he was my history teacher, uh, Mr. Catanzarite. And I found out later he was a believer, Mm. but he's the one who I needed to get somebody to write a letter of recommendation. It was during the summer after I graduated, and I had to have a teacher for Great Lakes to give me a letter of recommendation. And I thought of a couple of different teachers, but then I just went to Mr. Katanzarite. and uh, he used to tell me I would be a, he said, you need to teach history in high school, because I just loved it and ate it up and, and it wasn't work in his class. It was fun. And so when I went to him to ask him to give me the letter of recommendation, um, he said, so tell me about this college. And I told him. And then he looked at me and he said, I used to pray that you'd be a preacher. Mm. And I had no idea. So here I had a teacher in the school system, which is why I always say with a smile when I say it, and I'll say it for the rest of my life, the best youth ministers in the entire world are in our high schools and junior highs. Yep. And he was a guy that was praying over students and we had no idea. He wrote me this nice letter. In fact, when I went to work for the college that I went to later. I had access as the academic dean to the files and I went back and read my letter of admission, my essay, it was ridiculous. (laughs) It would not have passed any standards. And then I read his recommendation letter and I was just really moved because I never read it. He just sent it directly to school. Yeah. So just examples that coaches, my coaches weren't Christians, but I had one or two teachers that were very invested That I found out were believers.
1: And you don't even know what to do when you hear him probably say, well, I've been praying that you would be a preacher because you're thinking you don't know what to do with that, but you're also, you're just going to Bible college for a year, but he's thinking like once you get there. So yeah, that's awesome. He must've saw something in you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He was just a, a, he's one of those teachers that would stop teaching in the middle of a lesson if something more important was happening. And I always just thought he was so attentive. Yeah. And, but he was heading toward retirement and, uh, yeah,
1: that's awesome. Yep. And then you said your friend because is this your friend Mike that you mm. mentioned at church camp? Every now and then to us, you mentioned a guy named Mikey. Yeah, that's, is this is that's this that him. Yeah, guy? That's him, yeah. Wow. Yeah,
0: uh, and he didn't live. We didn't live near each other. We well, we do now. I mean, it would be probably a forty minute trip, but we didn't see each other except for camp. And we just somehow would always connect, and we'd always bunk together. It was like even in high school, we'd get in the same. Dorm and stay in the same bunks. It started in fourth grade and we've been friends ever since.
1: So he's, and so was he your roommate?
0: Yes. Until he went and got married. <laughs> Ruined that whole thing. Yeah, time, I know. You know? He, he left me my junior year and then I had to find new roommates. <laughs> you just kind of down, you're kind of surprised yeah. you even found a girl, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we grew up together, good and bad.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, what was going about college? What was that like for you?
0: It was academically a challenge because I had coasted through high school. Okay. I didn't have. Uh, wow, when I look back, my levels of immaturity were ridiculous. And so I went to college. I had gotten good grades. I hadn't tried very hard. Um, I could go in and figure it out. And uh, I'm not naturally intelligent. I had to work. When I got to college, I had no idea. The first paper I ever turned in in a class got sent back to me and it said, go see so-and-so, a fifth-year senior, on how to write a paper. And I went, he was on my floor. And so I went and knocked on his door and I was embarrassed and I showed him my paper and he just smiled and he goes, Here's what he wants you to know. And he walked me through the paper and showed me that research is not an opinion piece. You know, that no one cares about your opinion. They want to know what you can prove. And so he laid out this paper. And then I found out later when students were knocking on my door my junior year that okay. I was now the one. Yeah. And so this was a local preacher who was teaching as an adjunct and he was trying to get us to understand that nobody wants to hear my opinion in the pulpit. What they want to hear is what's the research say? What to have minds agreed on? How to think about this? And so- My freshman year from, I think I came in, what, it was under a 2.5, like a 2.3. And uh, my dad saw my grades at Christmas time. And this, once again, is not my dad, but he looked at those and he was paying my room and board. And he said, I'm not paying for this. Mm. He said, if you don't start taking this seriously, because, you know, and I grew up with uh, C's are unacceptable. You can get B's without trying, you should get A's. And so he told me that. And out of respect, I went back and tried to figure it out and uh, did better. And it wasn't until I met uh, my wife at college that I learned how to study.
1: So, cause he saw that and it was like, this is unacceptable. And you're like, no, this is like, you really are.
0: My dad realized I was having a lot of fun my freshman year.
1: Okay, okay. So it wasn't quite that, huh? He, I, yeah. I, he was on to you, Yeah, huh? there
0: were cute girls who loved Jesus. That was a good thing. There were, it was a lot of fun. We had some freedom and I enjoyed my, I enjoyed all four years of college. But my freshman year, I enjoyed it in the worst possible ways.
1: Okay. So you just you, know, you mentioned, uh, you, you just said your wife. So you met Heather yeah. there at, at Bible College? In the
0: summer between my freshman and sophomore year, uh, I was lifeguarding at the church camp. And our school would take the freshmen from campus off-site for a weekend to get to know each other, to build to build the freshman class together, to make it cohesive for all those kids that were from far away and everything. It was a really good thing. And we went, and they just happened to choose a church camp that I worked at that summer. And so one of the professors knew I worked there and asked if I would stay in lifeguard because he had to have a water safety instructor's license. And I had it. And he said, would you mind lifeguarding the weekend before you come up to school? And I said, yeah. And then this cute girl walked by me. And I said to my buddy, Derek, who was helping me that weekend, I said, who's that? And he said, I went to church camp with her in Michigan. And so he said, her name's Heather. And I walked over and tried to talk to her, and, oh, Scott, she wouldn't give me time of day. She <laughs> she had wanted nothing to do with me. And so uh, I pursued that for about three weeks just to even get her to talk to me. But I was taken from moment one. And uh, so we started dating then a few weeks after that into the semester, and then we dated for three years before we got married.
1: So uh, so what was her—why was she at, yeah. at Great Lakes? What? What? Uh,
0: Heather was an athlete, played basketball and softball. So mm-hmm. she came to Great Lakes to play basketball for a year or two, and she wanted to be a paralegal. So Cooley Law School is in Lansing, and it's one of the top law schools in the state of Michigan. So she could du- dual enroll. And her intention after two years was to get her associates at Great Lakes and then go on to be a paralegal. And uh, then God did some things in her life, and she decided that's not what she wanted to do. So... Um, because she was duly enrolled, she got her associates after the three years that we were in school together, and then we both graduated spring of eighty seven and got married that following August.
1: So, were you were you doing were were you doing something like working for a church in this like like through there or what What was that?
0: Uh, I traveled for the college one summer. I worked for uh, the church camp my, between my freshman year. My Between my sophomore and junior year, my dad got me a job driving over-the-road trucks on these uh, called Hot Shots, so they'd call at 11 o'clock at night, and the part had to be moved from Chicago down to Bedford, Indiana, so they could run the second shift at the Ford plant. I made too many of those runs. Hmm. So that entire summer, I paid for two years of college by just being a college kid who had no job, no life, no family played softball, when the beeper would go off, I'd find a payphone. I'd call. They'd tell me to come pick up a truck and go, and I went. I made good money, I had no life, stayed out of trouble. And then my junior year, I traveled for the Bible college. And that, and that helped me with tuition money. And then uh, that fall, I got an opportunity by a church in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, to come start a youth ministry. They'd had a youth minister previously about 10 years before, but nothing since, and they had some young kids, in the and they wanted to start that. I didn't take a class for it, and uh, it's a long story how I got it. But anyway, uh, I started in October of 1986 at that church in in the fall of my senior year.
1: So were the uh, kids—you said they they started to have some kids. Were they high school kids or elementary kids or junior high?
0: There were— Two freshmen, three sophomores, and two juniors. All right. And so, and uh, I actually showed up for the interview because the professor told me they wouldn't hire me. He just needed me to go to the interview so they'd have someone to interview. There were three of us. I showed up in my baseball uniform after catching a doubleheader because our bus, our van was late coming back from Kalamazoo. And my dad always taught me it's better to be on time. Uh, than it is to ever be late, and so I just showed up with my baseball uniform. I didn't want the job, and they wouldn't want me. And uh, they smiled when I walked in the room, and I interviewed, and they asked me questions about youth ministry, and I hadn't taken a youth ministry class, and I answered everything as honestly and openly, and thanked them for their time. And the next day they called me, and I said, "Why me?" And they said, "Well, when you walked in in your baseball uniform, our two freshmen are wrestlers, our three juniors—one's a basketball player, the two girls are volleyball players, or the sophomores, and then the junior." was a tracks athlete. And they said, well, you'll have something in common with them. And we just want you to build a relationship. And then I stayed there for 22 years.
1: Okay, so you started there. You were basically working part-time. And then you knew that when you graduated from Bible college that you were going to go there. What was Heather thinking about being a minister's wife?
0: When we started dating, the truth of the story was I wasn't going into ministry. I didn't know what I was going to do. So we just started dating that we with no promises of anything. I liked her a lot. She had to learn to tolerate me and we got there. <laughs> it was in the summer that I traveled for the Bible college between my junior and senior year. Then I was traveling and we were at a Christ in Youth uh, summer conference, they called it back then. And, and um, I was sitting in the room and we were just representing the Bible college, meeting kids, hanging out at our booth, pitching them about why they ought to consider Great Lakes because it's in Michigan and it was a good program. And a guy walked on stage and he started to, preach. And his preaching was so good, like so clear. And it was no notes. The guy just left there crushing it. And I remember sitting in the back, you know, being a Bible college kid every now and then you hear so much preaching, you think, you know, what's good and what's bad, but he mesmerized me. And I remember this thought, God has never spoken to me in an audible voice, but I remember sitting there watching him and something was taking place around me. And I said, if I could ever preach like that guy did, that would be incredible. And um, he was amazing. And there was a great response that night. And it was a moving night. It was pretty powerful. And I clipped it and turned around and walked away. And I just remember that feeling like, where did that come from? Why did I think like that? And um, I went to the, we were, we had the off week after that week, went back and went into the administration building to get my mail because I'd been out for two or three weeks. And I wanted to get my mail to see, you know, maybe there might be a check from somebody who loved me in there. (laughs) And I had shorts on and we couldn't wear shorts in the ad building. So that plays a role in it. So I'm, getting my mail, and the president of the college comes down, President Lloyd, and he's like, Mark, I need to speak to you. And I'm thinking, it's my mail. Can I just get my mail and leave? Because I thought I'm in trouble for having shorts on in the ad building. And and as we're walking around the corner, he said, hey, I want to introduce you to our preaching professor. And I turned the corner and there was the guy from CIY standing in the hallway. Wow. And I was like, oh no, because then I knew exactly. So then I had to tell Heather, like, I think I want to learn to preach from this guy. And then she, I thought she would be mad. I didn't think it would be like she'd break up with me, but I didn't want her to think I misled her, or I betrayed her. And she just looked at me and shook her head and I could tell she was irritated and I said, what? And she said, everybody sees this Mark, but you. And I had no idea Yeah, that they were talking behind my back. Like, since as as he figures out he can preach, he should, but, a lot of what I saw my home church put our preacher through I had a lot of hesitancy about entering into the preaching ministry with the way churches preached uh, taught preachers. I can say on the record both churches I've been at have been nothing but kind to me. I've never faced the stuff my home preacher faced. Right. So and that was the beginning of that and then the president started giving me preaching assignments without asking my permission. He knocked on my door one day true story and Mikey and I were in our room watching a Bears game. He knocked on the door and said, you're preaching tonight at 530 in Alma, Michigan. And I said, President Lloyd, I've never preached a sermon. He goes, you can figure it out. And he just left. (laughs) And so Mike and I sat down with the Bears game on, and I started sketching some stuff out and came up with a little 15, you know, 18-minute talk. Drove up to Alma, Michigan at East Superior Christian Church, preached for about, 15, 18 minutes, two kind gentlemen gave me $20 handshakes on the way out the door and that bought me gas. And Heather and I went to dog and suds and had a <laughs> feast, you know? So I look at all this and I'm thinking, isn't it funny how people see things in you that you don't see in yourself? And yeah. That's why community matters. Yeah, Because think back, my parents created a community for me, my church, the church camp, the Bible college. I've been surrounded by people who have pushed me to try things I never would have tried based on my own assessment
1: yeah well and they all must have seen something special in you even for your high school teacher to say that he would pray you know that you would be a preacher that that says a lot uh, and sometimes you just don't understand who's all who's pouring into you at that time. So, but yeah, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Did you even when you were like church camp as a kid? Would you would they have you make announcements or talk in front of the people or anything no. like that?
0: No, um, there were a couple times the camp manager Bob must have seen. Well, he told me he saw something at a young age, but there were like one time the guy who was directing. So in the church camp, there's a guy who is the dean of the week. It's normally a local preacher and he brings in people, volunteers from his church and so forth. Well, there was an accident in the church and he had to leave. And there was a Vesper service after supper that night. So it would be a half hour worship service after dinner. And he had to go and Bob volunteered me to preach. And uh, and that's the first time I ever tried anything like that. I will tell you this, that you don't see it in yourself, but... My mom would rather take a beating than get up in front of a group of people and talk. My dad is as natural as you've ever met. Hmm. My dad would get up to do announcements at the end of church or the community devo, and he'd have people laugh and he just was very comfortable in front of those people. Um, and so I think I got that from him. And it took me a long time to realize not everybody has that. Right. It's not, I'm not special. I've right. just been given a comfort level that some people don't experience. Right. So I think people saw that, but I preached one vespers service at church camp until president Lloyd gave me a Sunday night service at a church. And all of a sudden, you know, people weren't booing and, you know, it's kind of like when you do something naturally, you think everybody can do it naturally and you find out sometimes they can't. Right. That doesn't make you different. It makes you different, not special.
1: Yeah. When did you realize that you could, uh, speak clearly that people reacted to it? Like, was it, when did you kind of feel that?
0: I still wonder about that. Um, there were just moments that uh, Mike and I, I remember one time he actually had preached at that same church and we were driving back and we were laughing and uh, he looked at me and he said, are we good at this or is everybody else horrible? And I said, <laughs> I don't know, because they were very, very kind. Yeah. And I think that's what the church can do is encourage people that if you're performing, if you're a sixth grader performing at a sixth grade level, that's pretty good. Yeah. And I think we were just young kids trying to learn to preach And uh, all I knew is I enjoyed the discovery as much as the presentation. Hmm. I love finding that uh, hook or that moment in the passage, not trying to find something new, but there's something that gets me up. Like I I can tell you most every Sunday morning when I'm in the shower, shaving my face, I'm thinking about, I can't wait till I get this part in my sermon. When that's not in my sermon, those sermons are hard because there's no moment that I wanna show you. Like, look what I found. And I think when I started discovering things to share, then I noticed the audience reacted different than they did previous.
1: So is that hard for an introvert? I mean, you've, you've you know, you said it on here, but also we just yeah. know that you are an introvert. Is that, was, that, was that weird for you to go in front of people and talk?
0: Uh, if I'm prepared, absolutely not. Okay. But it's not a script either. Yeah. Yeah. It, when, I, you know, when I've taught speech for over the last 20 years, I've taught it probably 15 of the last 20 years in different capacities. And I always tell people stage fright is primarily because you don't feel prepared. You, you're, you're not ready. It's not that you can't. It's that you're not ready. And when you see students get comfortable with their material. So for me, if I go in and my sermon is lame and I don't really have anything significant to say, I'll be as nervous as anyone you've ever met. Uh, but it's not an act either. I want to protect introverts that we don't go on and put on a show. I don't, right. I don't put a persona on when I walk on stage. But you have to know I've got hours in prepping for that moment. Because yep. you've heard people say this about me too. And it's not a defensive thing. They'll say like, well, you're different on stage than you are in the hallway. I'm exhausted in the hallway. Right. But I'm still me. Right. You know, I may not walk across the room and introduce myself to 17 people. Right. But it's not because it's a bit, because that's like awkward for me. But um, when I'm on stage, it's like, I've, I've prepped all week for that. I, this is my on deck experience. I right. want to get up and take my swings. That's right. Yeah. And that's different. And yeah. so that's why you think a, lo- a lot of introverts can be very comfortable on a stage because they've worked hard to get ready for it.
1: Yeah. So just to, just to even, before we uh, kind of walk into uh, the ministry side of it, so you and Heather got married, you, you said like at, right after college? Yeah, we
0: graduated in May, um, and then we got married in August. Okay. And, and then, we started, I started full-time that April
1: okay. at the church. And so the church, you were kind of interning at right there, yeah. or working part-time, you went on full-time yes. there. Yep. And yep. you said you were there for how long?
0: Twenty-two years. Okay, I was three and a half years as the youth minister, and then the the preaching minister there, man named Ivan Oder, it was an amazing man. Came to me, and uh, I had a chance to preach because I'd spoke at a church camp, a church in Indiana, Kokomo, Indiana. Asked me if I was interested in becoming, uh, coming down to preach on a weekend. And Ivan said to me, "They're going to offer you a job." And I said, "No, they just asked me to preach on the weekend." And he's and he told me two or three times they're going to offer you a job. And I said, "Ivan, honest." And uh, in fact, he said, well, if they offer you a job, you buy me lunch. And I said, and if they don't, you buy me lunch. And I came back that Monday after speaking that weekend and I said, where do you want to eat? And he just got a big chuckle and laughed. And then he said to me, do you want to preach more? And I hadn't thought about it till that moment, but I said, I think I do. I like the teaching adults. I love the kids. I still love those kids. I have connection with many of them, but I loved them. But I, I woke up every morning wanting to teach at a level that was more serious than I was able to do with the kids because of who I was. And uh Ivan said, well, then why don't you learn to preach here? And so younger than I am now, at the age of 53, that man stepped out of the pulpit and allowed me to preach 45 to 50 times a year. Wow. And then he did the pastoral, the counseling. He did all the stuff that I really wasn't ready for. And uh how many people get that opportunity? Yeah. I was so indebted to him.
1: But again, it just goes back to, again, somebody else saw it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to, yeah, he felt like... He did not love preaching. He was a good, good pastor. He just did not love preaching. And it took every bit of him to work up a sermon. And he saw that I couldn't get enough of that. And I'm not saying I was good at it, but I I would put the time in because I just loved
1: it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a special thing. So what about, like, what did you learn from him about leadership? Oh,
0: Um in fact, you know, he hired me and he, get, he got there in 1981. He hired me in 1986 to join his team. It was just the two of us with the secretary, a part-time 15-hour week secretary. And um, it wasn't, in fact, like I said, I started there in 86. The last thing I did in Mount Pleasant before we moved here was his funeral. Hmm. And what I learned was uh, relationships keep you. Um, talent doesn't keep you. Uh, there's a lot of talented people who can't connect with people and have relationships with people. Ivan was a great pastor. He cared for people. He loved people. He counseled people. Uh, he never complained. He was as available as anybody could ever be. And uh, I went to him one time, probably two years before he passed. And I said, Ivan, how many how many meetings did you keep me from going? How many people did you sit down and keep from coming after me because I was just such a punk <laughs> in in ministry? And he smiled and he said, not too many to worry about. Hmm. And I'll never forget that moment because he admitted, yes, I kept people from getting after you, but he he let them through if they needed to get to me. Like if I'd messed up, uh, I smarted off in an annual meeting one time to uh, a man in our church who I felt was disrespectful to Ivan and I defended Ivan. And Ivan told me the next morning he came to my office and he said, you're going to go to his house and apologize. And here I'm 22 or 24, something like that. And I go, absolutely not. I'm not apologizing. And he said, you can pack your office up by the end of the week if you don't apologize. And he made me go and apologize to this man for being disrespectful to him. And that man never apologized for being disrespectful to Ivan, but Ivan made me swallow that. That was a good lesson. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, "You don't. your humility is not based on whether someone else is humble. Huh. And so he forced me to do that, and that was bitter. But it was things like that that I learned from him. I learned how to stay in one place because there were moments people went after him and he never let that affect him. He just stayed and fought through it. Yeah. So he's a hero of mine.
1: Yeah. And so uh, Alex is your oldest. He was, he was born there. So how long into ministry uh, had you been in ministry whenever he was born?
0: Yeah, there were a couple things that Heather and I look back on that really built us into Mount Pleasant. First of all, we bought a house. And um, the moment you buy a house in a community, people know you're not gonna pack up and leave for the next offer. The second thing was then I think, seven years into our marriage, we had Alex. Okay. And once we became parents, and he had, my goodness, he had more sets of grandparents than any kid's ever had in their entire life. Yeah. And uh, they loved Heather and I, and Braden was born then, 10 years after that. And so they watched us grow up. They watched us date, get engaged, get married, build a house. They they walked with us through every bit of that. They're as much family as any blood family we have and so that was yeah so alex was we moved when we came here alex had just finished his freshman year of high school so okay mount pleasant's his hometown
1: okay so whenever um, uh, and braden was how old then braden was 4 when we moved okay here. braden was 4 when we moved braden has here. very
0: few memories of michigan yeah yeah we take him back and show him things every now and then but he's our missouri boy
1: yeah absolutely yeah our daughter who's 18 now she was she was a month old when we moved here, so she doesn't really know anything of Louisiana or any of that. So, or, well, she wasn't born in Louisiana, she was born in Indiana, but she definitely doesn't know anything of that. So, but, so going, you, when we started talking to you, you were, you were also, uh, you were on staff at uh, the Bible College. So, how did you transition from it? Like, what was going on in ministry to, to get to that point, to that, were you doing both at that time? That's where that I time. say God's
0: God's good to me because He was very patient with me. Um, I started when I got my master's degree. I finished it in ninety uh, one, mm. and the Bible College came to me in ninety two and simply said they had a couple classes. Would I be interested in as an adjunct of teaching there? I felt so loyal to that school and the professors there, and many of them were still there. So to to be honored to do something like that, I thought, okay. So I talked to the elders of our church, and they're like, yeah, you go do that. You go have fun. And uh, they thought it would be a one- or year, two-year thing, and I just fell in love with it. Uh, and then in, uh, I became a trustee at the Bible College. So all of that at, while being an adjunct. And when I became a trustee at the Bible College, we hired a new president. And that president was a friend of mine, and uh, he, w- he was hired in 1999, and in 2000, he came to me and said, "I could use your help." And I thought he meant more classes. And I thought, "Well, I'll fight for that." He said, "I'd really love you to come down and help me fix some of the archaic rules in the student handbook that were keeping kids from wanting to be there." There were some; just they had to update it from the 70s into the 2000s. And I was fascinated by that. And he said, "You teach a full full time load," and all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh no!" It was the first time I ever saw myself not at Mount Pleasant. And so I had to grieve through a period of saying goodbye, like, am I ready to leave local ministry to go train the next generation of church leaders and preachers? And I couldn't answer yes to that, but I knew I had to make a decision. So Heather and I talked about it and prayed about it. And and I went to the elders in Mount Pleasant, and I said, "Uh, I think I wanna do this. And they said, well, then you probably should. And to me, that meant I'm gonna have to resign my position, possibly move out of Mount Pleasant to Lansing. That was a lot and we were just kids. And uh, there we were looking at each other. We'd only been married a dozen years or so and had a, you know, had a baby. And, uh, and he was just starting into kindergarten, in fact. And I was like, what do I do? And I went to the elders and I said, I think I'm going to do it. And they all smiled and they said, okay. And I said, well, how do we announce it to the congregation? And the elders said, how about you stay here and preach? And you go down there and teach. And you come back at nights." And we're going to hire someone to run the office during the day and to be here for people and to do some of the pastoring stuff that you can't do. And I was like, you're going to give me the best of both worlds? I get to be in the college environment with these dynamic kids. I also get to keep my church. I get to preach and teach. So I would, before cell phones, I would call from my office back to the office, and they would tell me, hey, stop at the hospital in Alma on your way back and go visit so-and-so, or you have an appointment tonight tonight. Or uh, you got the night off, just go enjoy your family. And so I had this great relationship with the staff. I was doing staff meetings on Monday. I was teaching Tuesday through Friday at the Bible College. I had the best of both worlds. And then that started the church toward about 2007. uh, The church had had just flatlined. There was, we'd kind of lost momentum. There was, everyone had become a little bit complacent. And I realized that I needed to go back. They needed me to be full-time. And I didn't, Scott, I couldn't. I, I prayed about it. I was like, God, I'm going to suck this up and prove to you I love the church, and I'm going to go back. But every time I did, I'd cry. Uh. And I just had this feeling like this isn't right. And I was struggling. I was broken. And I went to the elders, and I said, you need me to come back. And they kind of looked at me. And they was, these were friends of mine. We had warred together. And and I said, I need to come back. And they said, uh, but I can't. And they said, no, we wouldn't ask you to come back. And so then I knew I needed to step away. But— during that whole process, a lot of the reasons we had stagnated was I was immature. I didn't have some of the discipline I needed. You know, They gave me the keys as a 23 year old to become the full-time preacher and I wasn't ready for it. They surrounded me with as much help as possible but I couldn't stop being me. And I had a lot of heartache and hurt and I just begged God, I don't wanna hurt this church, I I don't. And so it was a long process and I probably stayed a year longer than I, I should have and the elders were so kind and so gracious. So when you all contacted me, I hadn't been preaching regularly. I'd been going out for the Bible college and preaching on weekends there, but that's, that's not the same as leading a group of people for a period of time. Right. So when you all contacted me, I thought I was done in local church. I had got to that spot where I felt like many of the things that Mount Pleasant got stuck on was based on me. And uh, I, think, I still to this day think I'm correct. So I'm not looking for someone to go, no, it wasn't you. No, I think it was my lack of maturity, my lack of understanding and wisdom, uh, my lack of self-discipline. There were just a lot of things in my life that just didn't afford itself to be in the position I was in. And so when you guys called uh, I and contacted me about my interest, I had thought I was going to be at the Bible College until I retired, that I was just going to teach in the Bible College world.
1: Because did you feel like that? Was that because of the elders saying, why don't you just stay at the college? Or was that just because you felt more at home at the school? Yeah. Like, I mean, what's...
0: I think when I understood what God what God had gifted me to do is I'd always have Ivan to cover over those areas I'm not very good at. Uh, I can do biblical counseling, but the long pole, six and eight sessions with people, Ivan was doing that. And the, some much of the pastoral stuff, Ivan was doing it. And I would do it, but I couldn't take the weight Right. that he was doing and do the teaching and preaching at the same time. i just not gifted that way. Right. And uh, that's what wore me out. And then Ivan had retired. And so now I was faced with this, oh no. And so because Ivan and I had the relationships, I'm in Lansing, 70 miles away, teaching every day while living in Mount Pleasant. Ivan's retired and it's not fair to keep putting all that burden on him. And I knew they needed someone to come in and fill that. And when I tried to like I said, suck it up and say, I'll do it. There was no blessing in that. I just knew that God was not leading me in that. That was something I was doing out of duty and not calling. And that's when I said to them, and they they smiled like, yeah, we, we can't ask you to do that. So that's the 2008. I get a call from you guys in the fall of 2008 asking at the end of September, in fact, asking if I had any interest in having conversations about coming here. And my response was not, Oh no, Oranogo not a good opportunity. My response was, "I'm empty. I'm... <laughs> if if I could grow, I told you this directly. If I could grow a church, I'd still be at First Church in Mount Pleasant. Right. I saw this church of over a thousand, and I thought, Oh my goodness, if I can't take the pressure of a church of three hundred, how in the world could I come here? And God, in His kindness, nurtured us through that hurt.
1: So when you started, so when when like when Christ Church reached out to you. What's, because uh, I think a lot of times even people listening to this podcast, uh, we, I've tried to have people talk about this before. Uh, just love to hear about like, you know, what's the process that you're like, you, you know, your prayer life, what, what are you thinking and reaching out to God, you know, whenever this kind of happens. Because you think you're going to stay here, and then yeah. this other thing comes out of nowhere when you think this is yeah. kind of over with.
0: I've learned with a smile on my face that God doesn't care what I want to do. Mm. and my plans, my pronouncements of where I'm going to be. I was going to be a sports writer, no. Uh, I was going to go to Great Lakes and not get into ministry, no. I was going to be at Mount Pleasant for the rest of my career and stay at one church, I've said that out loud, no. Uh, I was going to go to the Bible college and finish there, no. So when you guys called, what did I say? No. And God's like, oh, interesting. So it led me to a, a major crisis, back to Great Lakes offering me a chance to come on in 2000. Uh, I had a moment in time when I was praying and asking God, just show me what you want me to do, that I saw myself in a classroom on Great Lakes campus teaching. I saw it as clear as I've ever seen anything in my entire life, out of nowhere. And that moved the needle for me. Like God was showing me, I can use you here. Um, And I believe he could have used me staying at the church, but he showed me this. And then when we were having conversations with you, I just started praying. I had a son who just was in his freshman year of high school. Right. That's a tough ask on a kid. Right. And so those you, you listening, even those that's the ministry, our, our family's not secondary. Right. You know, if, if my, my children hated me because of ministry, we did something wrong. Um, and Heather and I have always tried to protect the boys from, to, we want them to love the church. So we, they don't know all that goes on in the background. They don't need to. It's not, they don't need to carry that. Let us carry that. Right. So there was that conversation. Heather and I were in a rough spot of our marriage, to be real honest. I was working in a different town. We were seeing each other, but we were raising kids and life was hard. And, and we weren't like separating or anything, but we were at a rough spot in our marriage. It was just cold. And we'll both admit that. So to ask her to move from a state, she spent her entire life in with her mom, who had just moved to Mount Pleasant, to live so we could help take care of her. She, she lives independently, but she still could use our help and family close by. There were all of these factors. You know, poor Braden, he never got considered because he's four, he'd get in the car and go wherever we go. <laughs> he didn't have a vote no, at all. Not at all. But we had a lot of hard, tearful conversations. And let's just be honest, there was sometimes there was anger. Uh, so for me to ask my family to trust me for every moment in our lives together, I didn't earn trust, those come up. And God was patient and kind and gracious to work through all of those. He didn't avoid our conflicts. He made us deal with them. And uh, it was a huge ask. I know this runs long, but I have to tell this part of the story because I think it shows God what God does. Uh, You'll think this is an exaggeration. um, The three people involved in the phone calls know exactly this is true. I had picked up the phone three different times to call you guys and say, I couldn't come. It was a chance of a lifetime and I wouldn't take it. The first time I, I called, uh, I picked up my cell phone and it rang. The moment I picked it up and I looked and it was Peter Buckland, one of the elders here. And Peter and Scott Boudreaux called me out of the blue to pray for me because they knew this was hard a hard conversation we were having. And they just wanted me to know whatever I chose was fine by them. A couple days later, Heather and I had one of those conversations that I was just done. I was like, forget it. I'm, I'm not going to put my family through all of this anymore. Enough's enough. It's been hard. And I picked up the phone and it was Andy Hansen, who was the president of CIY and been a dear friend of mine for 20 plus years at the time. Um, he called and had sent me a book and asked me if I had read the book and I had just finished it. And he just simply, he and Marcy prayed over me. Third time, Heather and I and Alex had had just a tearful conversation and I saw I was wrecking them to even consider packing everything in our lives and going to, to a group of people we knew very few. And I uh, Looked down and my phone was ringing. It was Clifford Wirt, one of the elders here. His entire life group gathered around a phone and prayed over us. And I have to be honest, I've never told anybody this part of the story. It was the most irritating 12 minutes of my life (laughs) listening to them pray over me when I wanted just to hang up the phone and leave me alone. And yet God began to move in that. And it was soon after that that I saw myself preaching on the stage here. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so we got back in the kitchen and I looked at Alex and uh, Heather. Alex is our oldest son. And I said, Alex, I can't do this to you. And he said, Dad, I think you should. And then I looked at Heather, and her, uh, her response was a little less sweet, a little more direct. And she said, you're scared to do it. You know what you're supposed to do. You're just scared. And she was right. And so at that moment, I had to find resolve. And I just started praying, God, I'm going to do this. Stop me if this is a mistake. And he didn't.
1: Well, it was interesting. Uh, I, I feel very... Uh, honored i'd never i'd been a part of, of hiring staff at a church but I'd never had been a part of you know of being a part of a senior minister search uh when Lynn raxdale stepped down and and uh but we had two names uh of people that we wanted to talk to and we talked to both of you all the same weekend mm-hmm. and um you know one of the things that intrigued me about uh meeting you and and having the conversation was is I told you. Before that, I, I listened to multiple CDs of you preaching, and you were just mm. so clear. And I just felt like our church was so young in their faith that so many of them could just do that. And and you were so clear and so consistent. Each one of those, I was just like, I I, I think we we got to have a conversation with him. And the funny part was, is is both people we were talking to y'all weren't too far away from each other, right. you know, that right. we were. And but we were sitting there in the conversation with you and um there were multiple times that it, it just felt like that what got you to where you were to have that conversation was because of things didn't go maybe the way that you thought yeah. you know and i just remember sitting there and coming back and and having conversation with the elders and you know we'd spent time praying and fasting about it and they just said you know which which one do you think asked you know all of us that was there part of that time and and for me it was just like I think mm-hmm. it's Mark, you know, and it was just, but also what was so intriguing to me was, is that you, you came in going, I don't know if I'm the guy, because, you know, the statement you had even made meeting with some of the elders was, how, how did that go? Uh, you probably remember yeah. this. of when they asked you, can you grow the church? And you said, are you willing to? Yeah.
0: One go, of the elders in a kind of move actually said to me, it seems like maybe you're scared of this church becoming a church of 3,000. And I said, are you scared of it becoming a church of 500? And everybody laughed nervously. And I wasn't being snarky. My response was, if if you won't take the risk of going backwards with me, I won't take the risk of going forward with you. Because if I knew what to do, I would be doing it somewhere else. But I didn't know what to do. So if you needed a reclamation project, that's where my heart was. God had given me 22 years to experience success and failure, but the failure wore me out. I didn't know how to handle it. And maybe those levels were my own expectation. Then I come to this opportunity of a lifetime and I'm thinking, I don't wanna hurt this church. And I said to the elders, and they said they asked me, can you, make, can you tell us yes? And I told them, I can't. And they said, why? And I said, this is, this is bigger than me. I don't know if I'm supposed to be it. And then one of the elders, the same elder who asked me that question said to me, will you come here and preach the gospel to, with us? And I said, yeah, but that's not the job. No church offers somebody that job. And he said, we are. And I believed him. And he said, there's more to it, but it's not all on your shoulders. And uh, I don't even know if it was all on my shoulders in Michigan, but it felt like it. Right. I, wasn't, I wasn't trusting God enough to turn it over to him. And he was patient enough to let me have, I still can't, I can't believe I get to say this. He let me have that much failure in Michigan and give me the opportunity to start brand new at a church that would protect me from those same failures. What a gift.
1: Well, I, you know, it was the thing to where, like I said, but the funny thing was, is I think every person in any of those meetings with you could tell that you were, that you were, that you felt broken, that you felt like you, like the way the world was on you, even thinking about coming here, how'd you do this, do that? And we were looking at you going like, it's not your problem. That's not your problem, you know? Uh, But also that's what intrigued us most about you was, is because you got to this point because of following God not everything going the way that you thought it would but you were still faithful yeah. and that's what it, and that's what we wanted that's what we could all just see
0: it it's been a privilege and it's been a journey where God has revealed himself to be faithful every step of the way in spite of my lack of faithfulness sometimes and my outright rebellion but he was patient and that's what when you know the expectations that people put that God's going to do it this way you normally don't see what God did till it's been done
1: right Right. Yeah. And the elders here, they have a different mindset on things. Right. You know, whenever, whenever, uh, Lynn stepped down and, and, uh, they looked at some of us in a meeting and they go, we're going to grow in between the, the, Lynn stepping down and the new senior minister. I was like, how do you know that? And they go, that's what we do. Yeah. And I was like, okay. You know, I remember driving home going, they have lost their ever loving mind. You <laughs> know, like, how are we going to do this? Well, you know,
0: I knew this is one thing I told Heather that really, allowed me to pray uh, deliberately was uh, this church didn't need me, the, they didn't need a savior. They didn't need a hero. They didn't need someone to fix them. They needed just more people to partner with where they were going. And where this church wanted to go to be a teaching church, not a, not a big event church, but a teaching church was very enticing because I thought, no, I believe that too. I believe discipleship comes from getting people to know the word for themselves.
1: Absolutely. And
0: so because of that, when they were like, I'm not an orator, I'm not a big conference speaker that people across the nation want to hear, but man, I do think my heart is a teacher. And so walking through that and accepting that level was was pretty awesome to go. That's when I saw myself here. Like, if they're telling me the truth, and I have no reason to believe they're lying, but if they're telling me the truth, this is the chance of a lifetime.
1: Yeah, and I, it's just, it's just been amazing to see that. So I just love uh, you know, we get asked a lot of questions about, about your, um, about your rhythms and things like that. Love for you. Talk about like you're just your rhythms, writing your sermons, kind of how that goes. And then just your rhythms kind of where you are, you know, in your daily life. So.
0: Randy Garrison was the lead, uh, minister at College Heights Christian Church here in Joplin. And when I got here, I asked him if he would meet with me for a couple of months, just to grab a Coke and so we would meet at different places. And I would just ask him one or two questions per time just to honor his time. And one of the questions I asked him was, what's coming my way that's different at a church of 300 than it is a church of 1,500, 1,800 at the time? And he told me that, and he was 100% correct. And In fact, everything he told me was accurate because he'd experienced it. But he said, if you're not careful, your staff and uh, administrative responsibilities will, will own your entire week. He said, if you're also not careful, the people of the church will own your entire week. And you have to find the balance of how to serve both well. So because of that, and the way I'm naturally inclined, um, I have my rhythm in a week is Monday is all about staff. It's staff meetings, it's administrative meetings, it's connecting with people who need some time from me during a week. It's so that we can all set our week and go. Tuesday is my writing day. Um, as many around here know, it's my favorite day of the week to be able to write and to get in my office and study and to have six or seven hours of uninterrupted. Now, there have been times there have been interruptions, but none of them ridiculous. It's it's something's happened and and I need to weigh in on it or I need to go. and and uh, But I wake up every Tuesday morning as happy as I've ever been because I can sit down and, and plot out where I'm going with uh, the sermons. And then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I just keep time open to meet with people in the church Uh, to do some discipleship, to do some counseling, to meet with people who have complaints, to meet with people who just want to connect. And so Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday is my day off because it's uh, my wife's day off, and we like to do things as family. And so to take a day off when she's working is kind of wasted for me. I'm going to work anyway. And uh, so that's the rhythm. And then Sunday is a a full morning, but it's never work.
1: Right. So even with Thursday night service, so... When when do you feel like your like your sermon is ready to go? Because now the rhythm is Thursday night before the Sunday morning. Like, so when is that?
0: Yeah, I I will um, finish writing like uh, I will finish writing the message on Tuesday, and I want to be at eighty percent. I always tell myself, could I walk on stage right now and teach it this way? And if when it gets to that stage, like I got enough to go, I'll stop. And like a good lasagna or any good Italian food, it marinates really well in the refrigerator as a leftover. Yep. Tuesday or Thursday morning, uh, depending on my schedule, but every Thursday morning, I will polish it for Thursday night. And as I told one of the elders when he was making fun of me on a Sunday morning when I was fixing things before I walked out, is the sermon is not done until it's preached. It's always, it's always moving. It's always, I'm always writing and editing and trying to do that. So to answer your question, the week of a sermon, Tuesday, I'll be at 80%. Thursday morning, uh, I'll polish it and get it ready. And Thursday night, we launch one of the first four presentations of it. And I'm adjusting, you've heard it. Yep. Uh, I adjust between every service, what's working, what's not working. Some people write manuscripts, they're more disciplined than me. Uh, I just have found a style in my voice that it's like I look at all four of our audiences for Thursday night and three on Sunday, they're, they're different personalities. They're different levels of understanding and I'm trying to, to give them all something.
1: You, uh, a lot of people uh, probably don't know this, but uh, you work three to four weeks out to kind of help the Creative Arts. So, how does that flow work when you're trying to preach a sermon every week, and then you have uh, yeah. this? You know, you know what's coming in three or four weeks ahead of that. How what? How do you do, balance that?
0: Yeah, I always have three going. I have one I'm finishing. I have one I'm prepping and just dumping all the research material I need into it. And then the other one, I'm just beginning to say, "How? To, what's my main focus of that? So it's kind of like, it's. I always use meal prep for the students who ask me this question. I'm cooking tonight's meal, but I'm also making sure I got the groceries for tomorrow night. And uh-huh. then I'm thinking, what are we gonna have on the third night? And what do I need to do to get ready for that? What sounds good for that? When you preach series like we are apt to do instead of standalones or topical messages of just, each week's a different subject, that would be torture. But because we have a curriculum we write off of and we have a plan for every year of what we wanna cover, uh, I don't have to search for what, what's next. I just have to look at what's next and start studying for that. So when you're in a series, it's all connected. Like right now, I'm writing on our next series while finishing the Liberated series. And so that sometimes gets like, okay, what am I working on again? Yeah, I'm launching a new series, so I have to set it up. But I love that. That's not tedious to me. And creative arts needs to know three or four weeks out how to build around the message because we, we don't just, creative arts doesn't set music that's different. We talk. Right. Here's where I'm going. Here's the main point I'm making. And we would love if every service has such a symmetry to it that everybody's like, well, when someone will come out to the hallway and say, wow, those last two songs are really built around your sermon. Yeah, that's not accidental. Those guys are really good. And they, they're looking for music that says, that allows you and I to express in music what we just heard from the word of God. So it's been a challenge and it's caused a discipline in me that I don't know I could have handled at 24, 25, but at my age now, and with some of the shortcuts I've learned to, to, with my experience, I'm like, this is actually the best way to do it.
1: Yeah. Cause there, that, that's a lot of, it's a lot of information overload. that's all coming at one time. Yeah. So you, that's good that you've, cause you definitely are very disciplined on that. We all know that, you know, Tuesday, we all try to avoid even really communicating with you because we know that's. That's the day that you're, you're researching and doing those things. And that's important for all of us, uh, for that to, you know, to be able to go well for you in your own rhythms.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm a morning person. I I always have been, I'm pretty worthless from between two and five in the afternoon. Um, it's always been my entire life, my afternoon classes in college when I was teaching or a student, I was pretty pathetic. Uh, my energy is in the morning. So I uh, like to get up early and, uh, uh, exercise or do whatever that equivalency is for me, and then i'm I just set aside one hour every day that I'm uh, text is turned off, phone's turned off, emails turned off. And uh, I just I like to read through a passage of scripture, do some commentary work for no other reason. I don't do. It's not sermon study. It's just, I want to be reading through judges and I want to process that. And uh, fortunate to have good commentaries to go through and get perspective on it. And then I try to have a 15 minute period of time where I pray. And sometimes I don't pray. I just sit mm. and breathe and think about the Lord. And every now and then I'll pop some music on my computer. That's a song of my past, like maybe it's a song we sang in church. It's just an old hymn that I don't get to hear very often. And it takes me back to those people who have invested in me. So, uh, I'm very much uh, I'm a musician trapped in a non-musician's body. Music's important to me, so a lot of my rhythm of discipleship is sitting down and hearing the word sung or, or s- some spiritual music that just calls me to something better than what I'm hearing elsewhere.
1: So when you're doing your quiet time or you're, you're you know when you're just in your scripture for yourself, you're not. Reading stuff that's going to be used in a sermon—it's for your own growth.
0: Now, let's be honest: if it's inspired by the Word of God, that may show up in three series from now. Right. And in fact, some of the series we've done have come from those moments where I'm like, "Wow, there's a thread here. I'd love to present that thread because I'm seeing it for the first time." So, but I never, ever—I'm never in the Word for my own personal development on mm. the sermons I'm preaching currently.
1: Yeah, and that takes—that takes a discipline too to to not even look at it. Well, I've been—I was in my Bible for four hours today. Yeah. yeah. You know, it definitely keeps that. Uh, just love to see. Uh, just, um, just talk a little bit, just for a moment about leadership. Uh, maybe even what you learn about leadership at Mount Pleasant versus what you learn about leadership here at Christ Church.
0: Yeah. I think that um, leadership is a is a word now that people scoff at and roll their eyes. And and uh, if you if you're if you have leadership, you're hungry for power and control. And I don't believe that. I've teaching a class at Ozark on uh, leadership and ministry, the thing that I always tell them is my working definition of leadership, it's responsibility accepted. This is what God doesn't, it's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's Christ's church. I love the name of our church because it's the epitome of what the Bible says. We don't have authority. God has authority. And uh, so because of that, to lead is to shepherd. It's to take responsibility for a flock of people. It And yes, sometimes you have to discipline sheep and sometimes you have to limit where they can go and what they can do. And and if you're led by the Holy Spirit and you're trusting the word of God, then leadership is not a threat to anybody. And yet in today's world, it's, it's hard to do that. So what I learned about leadership is you earn the right to preach and lead. And those who lead from position uh, don't get good response. But those who lead in relationship and then use the opportunities God's given them for what's best for the kingdom, uh, people will submit to that. So what I've learned about leadership is you work with people who are called and competent, and you empower them to do what they're supposed to do. And if things break down, you step in and help them. But it's not command and demand. Leadership is responsibility accepted and honored. And uh, so one of the things, and I'll say this, even though you're in the room, uh, when I look at our staff, man, got people hungry to serve, not to be in charge. And people who are hungry to be in charge, they, I don't know if they threaten me, but they scare me. Mm. And I look at that and I think, boy, I need to know why you want that. But I look and I say, I look at our staff and it's like people helping other people's programs grow. And, and you see when in our uh, internal communication board, someone, I'm going to go help so-and-so move today. I love that stuff. Because you know, it'd be easy to say, well, no, I have a job and I'm working and I can't. No, what are, we, what are we here for? As my dad told me as an elder in the church a long time ago, Mark, people are paying you so you don't have to have a real job. Huh. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I get time to study, to teach. I get the privilege of doing this because people are sacrificing so that I don't have to be working in a factory or something like that worried about all this. I can focus attention. And, and uh, people who make it here at our church are people who get that
1: we have a staff here I, f- I think 50-ish somewhere around there mm-hmm. uh, somebody listen to this podcast and even that you know works with the staff or leads a staff uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give them of even of how to handle a staff this size or
0: wow well, yeah um, it's a learning experience completely and you don't lead everybody the same way because you're leading people that are not like you I think the the one thing that I've probably learned from uh, my failures here is to uh, to be quicker to admit, I don't even know what you're talking about, or I've never done that, I don't know what you should do. Um, I would do that a lot quicker. Mm. First five years here, I was trying to fit in and figure out if, you know, if I was gonna make it. And so a lot of people would ask for advice and I would give them advice because I felt like, well, the senior minister of a church should give advice. Now I would simply look at you and go, you know, I never faced this before. We're going to make this up together instead of offering suggestions. And I probably would have asked more questions of the people I work with, like, why are you asking that? I would make assumptions and miss, mm. desperately miss and make it worse. Mm. Instead of going, you know, are you unhappy? Do you see something I'm missing and you want to fix it and you want to step into it? I would be more... I didn't think I was being proud. I would be more humble to listen and understand quicker instead of assuming I did. Mm. Uh, Because when I look back, there's some things that would be different here if I had taken that posture first.
1: When did you start feeling comfortable leading the staff this size?
0: Um, Having been an academic dean at a Bible college uh, for three years, um, I think God gave me that experience. I wasn't good at it, but he gave me that experience to understand what it is to lead disparate people who— have different opinions and different talents and gifts. And uh, so probably it was the third year mm. here that I felt like, okay, I now know my job.
1: Yeah. Cause you definitely were thrusted into a lot of stuff. We had you weren't you were here what a couple of years when even when we dealt with the, the Joplin tornado and yeah. all those different things. I mean your role
0: Well on day one I was the least experienced person in a mega church. <laughs> <laughs> and I was supposed to be the team lead. <laughs> Uh, it was rough.
1: (laughs) um just curious uh as we as we finish up uh this podcast today uh either favorite verse or go to book of the bible when you're just kind of dealing with things or just a a verse that you lean on or or book of the bible
0: yeah um my my compelling life story will be gideon Hmm. um And I see so much of my journey parallel to Gideon's because Gideon was a man who God called to do something that he didn't feel competent to do or prepared to do. And yet God said, I will go with you. And he trusted and God showed up every step of the way. Sometimes God let him get scared and God stripped his army back from 32,000 to 300 to prove a point. And uh, I would look back and go, maybe that was my Michigan experience. Hmm. And yet what happened was after great battles and Gideon was known as a mighty warrior, and God even called him a mighty warrior when he hadn't done anything, he was hiding out. And yet after success and experience the presence of God, God pulls him aside and said, there's a idol in your father's backyard, go take it down. That was harder than the battle for Gideon Mm. to take away his security and to face his family and all of that. And I just see such a human being with clay feet that Gideon was. And so when I look back at, at my story, I'm thinking, you've let me have Gideon's experience. He's been faithful the entire time. And then probably I, uh, since I was a kid at church camp, one of the first verses I ever memorized because I wanted to never forget it is Proverbs 3, hmm. 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And when I was a kid in church camp, that seemed like one of those golden promises. Now I look back on it and I go, it's a fact. Yep. It's a fact. That's awesome. And so those are the verses when I look back, I was like, Mark, you spent so much of your time frustrated at God and yourself because you leaned on your own abilities, and he asked you not to do that. So I don't want anybody listening to this to, A, it's too long, but B, I don't want them to think, well, you have to be a pastor. No, look over your life and realize God. what God calls you into. He doesn't call everybody into local church ministry. He calls us into a journey with him. And Gideon's a perfect example of, and on that journey, God's going to point out some things that now it's time to deal with this. And now it's time to deal with this. And if you trust him, he will deliver you.
1: I can't thank you enough for uh, just taking time to to share your story and just uh, just the encouragement this could be to a lot of people and those listening. I, we just thank you again for taking the time to, to listen to this. And if you think that this story will help somebody that you uh, know or a friend of yours, a connection, just love for you to pass that on to them and just let them know that they can find this podcast uh, anywhere that they find podcasts just by searching Christchurch for No Go. Thank you so much for listening today.
0: Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christchurch for No we hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.